So Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 10 through 21. So we're going to take a pretty big chunk of text, which means we have a lot to do. Um, the connection with this passage and, and last week's uh, passage actually has a lot to do with uh, what we talked about last week, and that was uh, repentance. And repentance is that faith-given response to the, to, to the proclamation of the gospel. And in repentance, there's a, there's a, a grieving of sin, there's a confession of sin to God, and then in light of that grief and in the confession with God, there's a turning from that sin and then to, to God. And, and the result of that is, is a change in, in our hearts, a change in our, in our lives from sin, the desires of the flesh, and toward the desires of the Spirit of God, toward, the, toward the, what the Word of God says for us and to be obedient. There's a changed life. So uh, faith and repentance is, is, is uh, and this is the kind of the connection for this week, is that faith and repentance isn't, isn't just our entrance into the kingdom of God, but repentance is this ongoing producing fruit of the Spirit and through the Word of God in the life of a Christian. It is an ongoing fruit in the life of the Christian. It's an ongoing fruit in the kingdom of God. It's what marks a believer that they are growing and they're being transformed. It marks a believer that they are producing fruits. Now, I've added a few words into some of the things we talked about last week. And that is the, the kingdom of God. The, the mark of a believer in the kingdom of God, one of those is repentance. There's a, a, a fruit that produces and, and it marks that this person is part of the kingdom, that they are a Christian, that they are growing, and that they're being transformed. Now this week we're going to look at the kingdom of God and, and how that works and how the kingdom God, of God grows and works. So, so last week was more of a, a, a microscope look at the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and producing fruit of the kingdom of God in the life of a believer by, by repentance. And, and this week is more of a, a zoomed out approach or a macro look of how the kingdom of God is changing and, and growing. So what needs to, to, to be in our minds from the, from the get-go in, in, in engaging this idea of the growth and the transformation of the kingdom of God is, is to know that it, it takes place all the way down at the, the, the minute parts of our heart in repentance. There's a strong connection here that the, the gospel writer Luke wants us to see as well as the Holy Spirit. Again, I love the definition that we get from Graham Goldsworthy of the kingdom of God. And this is going to answer one of the questions. The kingdom of God is God's people and God's place under God's rule. God's people and God's place under God's rule. And what Jesus shows us today, that God's people, God's place, and God's rule in the kingdom of God, that it is always steadily growing. It's always steadily moving and, and expanding, and it's ongoing. That's what we see from Jesus this morning. So let's look at Luke chapter 13 together. I'm going to start reading it in verse 10. It 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her. That's huge there, right? He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And when he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Amazing sight. Spectacular things are happening here in the synagogue that day. Verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, it's a good word, indignant, word of the day, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from his bonds on Sabbath day? And he said these things. All his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, what, and to, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Now there is one thing for sure, those of us who have spent much time now in, in the Gospel of Luke, is that Luke really wants us to know that there's a grand theme of coming out of Luke, as there's many of them, but one of those is he wants us to know about the kingdom of of, of God, the, the what is it and what it's not and how it is growing and how the kingdom of God is, 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 is growing. Now these past couple weeks as we've been through um, uh, chapter 12 and started chapter 13, we, we've seen some, some tough words by Jesus. Last week I think there was kind of a culmination of, of those tough words, repent or die or likewise die I should say, that's what he said. Or, or, or likewise die. He warned about uh, hypocrisy and other things like that, as he even does again today in pointing it out. But, but even though there is uh, this, this need of repentance, and there's this connection of repentance within this passage, because once again, doesn't this beginning uh, story in the synagogue, isn't that another, again, this, this blaring spotlight on the need of the people of Israel to, to repent? They, they're still missing it completely. And, and these are strong words, but also within this, there's strong words of encouragement. 
strong words of, of, of encouragement to those who are in the kingdom of God. Uh, re- remember, again, context. He, he, he's talking a lot to his disciples, right? And here's probably talking to the crowd. But his disciples are, are listening. And this is, they are a small group of an insignificant, mostly redneck group of people. That's, that is who they are. They are mostly uneducated. Some of them are thieves. Some of them are stinky fishermen. And, and yet, Jesus is speaking to them because he is trying to encourage them that this is what the kingdom is going to grow into, boys. It's small now. It, it's small, and it's insignificant now. And you're just 12, but to you, you wait 2,000 years. Or more. You know, for most of my Christian experience, I have not been a part of big, successful ministries and churches. Most of them have been pretty, pretty small, um, um, small, seemingly insignificant, struggling at times, sometimes financially struggling. And for most of our experience, maybe they're about the same. They've always been a part of smaller churches and in the grand scheme of things always seems really small and and weak compared to maybe other churches that are doing seemingly well and i know firsthand the the feeling that that gives to a to a person particularly me a pastor that you can work for years and years in a church and spread the gospel and teach and do different things of, of ministry and yet see very little fruit. And once again, you see other churches and pastors flourishing. Seemingly very healthy churches and draws very a lot of members or people. Or, or maybe it seems like Everyone around you is maturing in Christ and flourishing in Christ, experiencing great joy in the gospel, but for you, and maybe in these last couple months or however it may be, or you experience these times where it's just been painfully slow or, or almost seemingly non-existence where, where it seems like, like sin is just beating you down all the time. But does that mean the kingdom of God is not growing? Does that mean that the kingdom of God is not transforming because everything seems like a struggle? If you feel that way this morning, as I have in times, this passage, this text is for you, to encourage you. You know, the kingdom of God is not about how we measure success and growth. And it, and it doesn't matter the, even the obstacles and slowdowns and challenges. It doesn't matter how small and insignificant we, we seem as a person or even as a people or as a, as, as a church or whatever it may be. What matters is the seeds of the kingdom of God have been planted and they are growing. The, the yeast of the kingdom of God, by the way, isn't that ironic, again, that Jesus is now taking yeast and making it into a good thing? Before we were trying to sweep it out, and now it's put it in. The, the, the yeast of the, is being put into the, the flower, and it's growing. 
visibly and transforming invisibly. This is the work of the kingdom of God. That despite our discouragements and seemingly insignificant self or whatever it may be, Jesus is telling us here that the kingdom of God will grow. Looking back at the first story, I want to engage with that first because it's there, and, and I want to show you how it connects to the, to the kingdom. So looking back at the first story, I want you to take a note of a few things. First of all, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, this is actually the last recorded time that we will see Jesus in the synagogue. It's the last time that we'll see him in, in the synagogue. Uh, but he is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and that's important. But it's what he's doing, again. Luke wants us to know very well, he tells us there, that Jesus is teaching. When Jesus goes to the synagogue, he teaches. So this is how I want you to see this. The word of God is teaching the word of God to the people of God. Okay? The word of God is teaching the word of God to the people of God. Now, I'm sorry. You don't get any better preaching and exposition than Jesus. You guys got stuck with me. Amen. I was waiting for that. And, and what's the response? Well, we read it already. What's the, what's the, 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 the major response that, that, that shows out first? Is it love? Is it wonder? Is it praise? We'll see some eventually, but is it love, wonder, praise? No. There's accusation that the word of God is breaking the word of God. And again, those who have ears to hear and hearts soften to the gospel respond to the word of God as the word of God. But not the synagogue leader and what we've seen in the Pharisees. Second, I want you to look at how they responded to the woman. How the synagogue leader responded to the, the woman. He had no sympathy, no empathy for this woman. When she had this disabling spirit, which doesn't mean that she was demon-possessed like we've seen previously, but it means that at some point in some time, 18 years earlier, Satan caused this. And, and, and this disabling spirit had a, gave her this problem of being bent over. And she couldn't straighten herself up and stand up like we can. And for 18 years, she was forced to live in this posture of humility, never able to look up. I mean, awkwardly living life, never able to, to look at anybody unless awkwardly turning and straining to look at a person. Think about all of her normal human relations of any kind of physical touch are almost gone. Years of pain and debilitation. And what we saw last week is they would have treated her like a sinner. That she did something. Now she's a sinner, get it. But she's worse than everybody else because of this sin. Because of this ailment. But yet what was this woman's spiritual focus? It was upward. It was, it was, it was upward. That's why she was at synagogue. And at no time, and at no point, do we see any real care for her. 
Now, these are, these are men of God. These are preachers of the word, pastors of, of God's word. And people of pastors of God's word who are preachers of God's word ought to care for those who are coming to hear God's word. They may not have been able to heal her like Jesus did. But certainly what an example she was. What an example she was of someone who knows and loves God and loves his word. She had every reason to stay home and stay in bed, doesn't she? Instead, a sinner, a Sabbath breaker, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. And this isn't just a lineage term. Jesus is equating her with this of faithfulness and a, a, a godliness. Yes, she still needs to be forgiven. Get it. She needs to be healed of sin. But this woman was to be an example. A godly woman who was ready to hear the gospel and repent. This is someone who the Pharisees could have learned from. Just a, a, a quick side note. When I lived in, when we lived in Cincinnati, Christina and I, uh, we were a part of a small church, um, and, and there was this older couple, and I, I really wish I could remember their names, but they were in their 80s, um, and, and they were married for like 60 years. It was awesome. And they were the sweetest couple. Man, the sweetest, sweetest couple. Very humble, lived humbly, drove humbly. I mean, they were just, I mean, literally, they drove a humble car for, for being their age. And, and, and without fail, every Sunday, they were there. Snow, ice, cold, no power, whatever it was, they were there. And you know, being, being young, I was early, mid-20s, I had no idea how probably how hard it was for them to come to church. How hard it was for them to, to, to come to church every Sunday and Sunday evening. Now, something to think about as, as a young person with elderly people, part of our, our church to think about. To be thankful of the example that they show us and to rethink some of our excuses. <laughs> Made me rethink some things. Is your desire to be with the Lord's people under the Lord's word on the Lord's day? That says a lot about the heart. It says a lot about the heart. Three, they accuse Jesus of breaking the commandment of of, of God by breaking the Sabbath, right? They accused him of breaking the, the word of God. Now, now here's the problem. We've seen this as we've talked about the Sabbath previously, is again, you can search through the Old Testament all the way through and get in the sections of when it's talking about the, 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 the Sabbath, and, and you'll never find one verse that ever hints to, you know, when it comes to the Sabbath, don't heal. Don't, don't do anything good for somebody if it's going to help them. You'll, you'll never find that. So what was the problem? If this was a good synagogue ruler or Pharisee knowing the, the law, what was the rub? Again, it was the addition to uh, the, the law. That's why Jesus calls them a hypocrite. That's why he calls them uh, a hypocrite. The, the demands of their own r- rules that someone else lives by. They were heaping burdens upon the people. And in verse 15, that's when Jesus just owns them. You can just hear the anger in his voice. You hypocrites. 
Does, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Now, now by the way, the, the, uh, the Jewish teachings, the Mishnah actually shows and gives specifics on you can do that. And it shows how you can do it and how far you can do it and, and all that. So they believed that. They followed that. But when it comes to a, a daughter of Abraham, sorry, you got to come back tomorrow. Oh, and we're not going to be here because it's not Sabbath. Jesus is angry. I think he's angry here because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And when you take his word and you steward it intentionally to build yourself up and to make yourself better than everyone else, yeah, you're going to anger God. He gave them the Sabbath not as a tool to keep people down, but to lift them up, to see him and to see their dependence on him. It was a day of rest. It was to be a, a day of mercy and a day of grace from God and then to each other. Completely missed all that. Completely missed the whole point of the Sabbath. In fact, they care more for their animal than they care for this woman. And, and actually what they're saying to the woman is, it's not that I actually care more for you than, than my animal, but they were teaching that God cares more about the ox and the donkey than you, crooked woman. <laughs> She's got one. I'm sorry. That one that she jumped on. Yeah. Amen. Out of the mouths of children. Um, missed the whole point of the Sabbath. They were teaching that God cares more about their animals than her. Fourth, I want you to notice that the woman, what the woman does after she's healed. And what does she do? She glorifies God. You know why she glorifies God? Because as a daughter of Abraham, she knows who healed her. She knows who healed her. Again, the response of the, of the, uh, the ruler is indignant, self-righteousness. How dare you heal on this day? And he doesn't turn to Jesus. He does, he's not man enough to talk to Jesus. Who does he talk to? He talks to the people. Look at this guy, breaking the law. Let me, let me introduce a secret about pastors. If a pastor is worth anything... When he sees his people, when he sees the people of God glorifying and enjoying God, in, in a pastor who's worth anything, there's nothing more exciting than that. There's nothing more energizing than that. It's what shows the pastor over and over again that all the sacrifices, that all the praying, that all the studying, all the striving, all the preaching has been worth it because they know they're glorifying God, and they're enjoying God. A pastor, a shepherd, elders, our greatest desire in the world, our heartbeat for you to glorify God, to enjoy Him, to trust Him, to be satisfied Him, and they miss that completely. Don't follow a pastor or an elder who does not delight in you glorifying God. Because she came on the wrong day. 
Now, it's absolutely clear that those who oppose Jesus, again, this synagogue ruler is a model of that to Jesus telling them to likewise or, or, or to repent or likewise perish, and then the, the, the barren fig tree that should be producing fruit that God is having unbelievable mercy upon right now, they were unrepentant. So the question, again, I think this question is what Jesus goes to talking about the kingdom of God and the seeds and the leaven and the yeast. The question is, is does this unrepentance of this man, of Israel, does that mean that the kingdom of God is not going to be established because there's so much rejection? Because there's so much objection? No. In fact, the very fact, the truth is, is we see the woman instead. Different, different ways, right? The unordinary way in which the Lord is growing his kingdom. Transforming people in his kingdom. She's the example of those who are going to be in the kingdom. Those that glorify God. Look at verse 18. We're going to read that section one more time. Look at verse 18. He said, therefore, so here's the, that's the connection, right? Because of that, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Is it like a grain? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And, and it grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, what? Shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in these three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So what does the kingdom of God look like? What does the kingdom of God look like? What is Jesus telling us that the kingdom of God looks like? Well, it looks tiny. It looks insignificant. But when that tiny mustard seed is planted, as Jesus is doing, planted in the garden, what does it do? It grows into a big tree that has many branches, many branches that the birds of the air will, will make their nests and find rest. It's, it's like yeast being mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, and it transforms that flour into usable dough. That's a lot of donuts, isn't it? 60 pounds, I can imagine you can make a lot of donuts that way. And the idea that Jesus is trying to get across is that the mustard seed and the yeast are tiny. They're small. They, it, they seem insignificant. And yet that's the kingdom of God. Yet what seems small and insignificant will ultimately grow and have an extensive impact. The, the mustard seed can, can grow into an, an impressive tree. A, a little bit of yeast can, <clears throat> excuse me, may not be impressive. It may not be impressive, that little bit of yeast, but what can it do in 60 pounds of flour? And if you leave it long enough, you know what can happen. Explode out of your oven. That, those things may not be impressive. 
It may not be impressive with all the authorities rejecting Jesus. They're opposing him. They're blind to it. And, and yeah, it's only one woman who's been healed. And that's just a, 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 a drop in the, in the bucket of human suffering. But Jesus is saying, give it time. Give it time and, and it will change everything. Doesn't his, the history of the church show this? Doesn't it illustrate exactly what Jesus tells us? You know, from, from this point in the Gospel of Luke and then into the book of Acts and all the way through the end, that small, uneducated, unknown, unheard group of disciples, they start out as nothing. Nobodies. So how are these nobodies? One of them abandons Jesus, right, and, and betrays him. So now there's only 11. How are these guys going to spread the gospel? How are they to fulfill the Great Commission? But what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God, when it is planted, has the power to grow and to enlarge into great proportions. 2,000 years later, the growth and the spreading of the kingdom of God now has spread throughout the world. There are still unreached people groups around the world, yes. But the gospel has spread throughout the world. The church has been established through these 11 nobodies. The very existence, brothers and sisters, of our faith today, totally separated from Jesus as far as we are in his earthly ministry and time and in distance, that just gives us overwhelming evidence of what Jesus is teaching this morning. What he's saying about the kingdom and how it's growing. This is how God works. I mean, very often does God take the winner of the group and use him. And a lot of times when he does use the, the big, strong person, what do they always turn out to be? Kind of losers in the end. They abandon the faith or they reject God. But God always takes, he uses most often the small guy, the small things, the, the insignificant. And he has very good reasons for that. Because he wants our glory. He begins something great with something that's small, that's feeble, unimpressive. And he totally confounds human expectations and vanity. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God. It is spreading through the whole world. But the kingdom of God does not work like other kingdoms of this world. We need to understand that they're different. Brothers and sisters, kingdoms, empires, countries, they all come and they all go. If you know history, you know this. Over the scope of human, of human history, how many have faded into history only to be forgotten? Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, Babylon, Assyrians. Should I keep going? They just fade away. It's nothing, only to be forgotten. But the kingdom of God, Rome, how about that one? But the kingdom of God, it grows. It grows slowly. 
It grows intentionally. You almost can't see it or even perceive it, but it's growing. How many kingdoms have come and gone since Jesus established the kingdom of God? Like the mustard seed, right? The tree grows upward and, and outward. Like the yeast in the flour, it grows inward and through. And like both of them, it grows visibly and invisibly. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not a country. It is not a nation state. It is not a piece of real estate. The kingdom of, of, of God is the work of God creating and transforming the, the people of God under the rule of God. It's not the establishment of the nation of Israel. It is something not of this world. And wherever Christians, and I use that loosely, wherever Christians have attempted to create this earthly vision of the kingdom of God within a, within a country or a particular place, like many popes have done in the history of the, of the, the Catholic Church, that's what the Crusades were about, they fail miserably. Because that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not real estate. Whenever people try to claim America as a Christian nation, it fails. Because America is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the people of God under the rule of God in the places of God. That's the kingdom of God. Let's not confuse that. As, as many have done before. So how does the kingdom of God grow? We see that the seed and it grows into the tree and the yeast it transforms the flower. How does the church and the kingdom of God grow? How does the church spread? How, do, how are Christians made all over the world? How are people transformed? The kingdom of God grows and is transformed by the preaching of the word of God. That's how it spreads. That's how it's sustained. That's how it keeps going. Think about it. Why are we here today, generation after generation after generation, from the time of the disciples? Faithful preaching of the Word of God. It's the Word of God that day that changed the woman. Right? Now we got back to the top. It's the, it's the Word of God that changed the woman. And it's the Word of God that's growing the kingdom of God and transforming the kingdom of God. You know, the temptation that we think, again, that things that we do as Christians are small and, and ineffective. And, and I think one of those, those lessons here from the small and insignificant that becomes something great here of the, the kingdom of God is... Uh, is, is here, don't reject or underestimate those small things. Don't underestimate the reading of the scripture or praying. You cannot judge the success of the kingdom of God by its immediate reception and the effects in our own hearts or in those that we want to see change. You can't judge the success of the kingdom of God based upon those things. Back in the late 1700s and early 1800s, there was a, a German theologian who, who looked at culture, and he looked at the, the cultural and academic elites uh, 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 around him of that day who were 
completely buying into every little bit of the Enlightenment. I don't want to go too much into this, but some of the Enlightenment was, was good, and some of it was bad, right? And, and some of the bad and unfortunate parts of the Enlightenment, because now we're humans, we're modern, and we're smart now, because we have all these new things of academia that, that no longer orthodox Christianity is something we can believe in, because we're modern. And so people were abandoning the faith. They were abandoning the church. You can't trust the scriptures. Miracles aren't real, etc. We have had a couple of those even in our own country back in the day. So this, this German theologian, he, he looked at this decline, and, and, and I think he, he genuinely thought that, that if something is not done, the, the kingdom is going to fail. The church is going to die, and it's going to crash unless we, we come up with something that takes the message of the, of the Bible and, and change it in such a way that this generation that's a part of the Enlightenment can believe and accept. And so he began to adapt the gospel message in a, in a way to make it more appealing, to make it more attractive, to make it taste better for their cultural sensibilities and academic standards. And so he made this series of lectures called On Christianity, on Christianity to its Cultural Despisers. The German theologian's name is Friedrich Schallmacher. Macher, Macher, Macher. If you said it, you'd say it the same way. And his goal, though, was not to destroy Christianity, but inevitably he put a big hurt on it. He's known as the father of theological liberalism. And brothers and sisters, we can see the evidence today that wherever theological liberalism is preached, that church dies. That church dies. Now, again, remember his design and his intent was, was to make the kingdom grow. He was, he was trying to change it to make it, make it more palpable for people to taste better. And he changed the message. He changed the gospel that it would be more attractive to the culture. And, and that's the great temptation of the church over the ages, isn't it? And even in our, even in our own age, if the, if the church is going to survive, this is our justification, if the church is going to survive and the kingdom of God will continue to grow, then we have to change our message or at least even how we preach it or deliver it. Now, for the most part, the, the German theologian's message has been rejected, not completely. But still, in, in mainline Protestantism, we see them fall to prey in this generation, a different kind of accommodation. That same desire, again, we, we're going to have to change the way we do church. In fact, this was the slogan of, of a particular church, rethink church. Huh? You know, surveys tell us that most Americans' reaction to Protestant mainline churches is that they are boring and irrelevant. Boring and irrelevant. And if that's the case, as leaders, boring and irrelevant, oh, we can fix that. And if you've got enough money, you can get talent, you can get things, and you can, you can change that. 
I, we, can, we can fix that. All we have to do is position ourselves in such a way to attract unchurched people who think church is boring and irrelevant and give them something so immediate, something so irrelevant, and something so exciting, who wouldn't come? And it's, this is all for the kingdom. This is to grow the kingdom. We remove all the barriers. We won't use the Bible words like repent and savior and sin and propitiation or even substitutionary atonement. We won't use words like that. We won't have church membership. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll call ourselves a church, but we really won't call ourselves a church because that's code for boring and irrelevant. And if we do preach... We're going to preach messages, 20-minute messages on five ways to have a better marriage and five ways to control your kids. I need that one. So what disappeared? The, the, the make the things the church attractive to unbelievers. To them, it's boring. It's irrelevant. They get rid of the boring and irrelevant things. But to us... What disappeared was biblical preaching, the Word of God. And that's the unfortunate reality. The faithful preaching of the Bible has disappeared. This has been happening for generations, and, and, and the statistics that we get every year now shouldn't surprise us that evangelical Christians who, who even say that they regularly attend church, they don't know their Bible. Why? Because for generations now, the church has massaged things in such a way to make church more attractive to unbelievers who think it's boring and are irrelevant, and they bring in this whiz and bang for this immediate gratification. And what happens? There are not disciples being made. The church is no longer for the church. That's not kingdom growth. The kingdom grows through the word of God. When I started college, I, I, um, I was given an exam as a freshman. First day, freshman orientation, they give you this exam. Christina might have, might have to take it too. Um, and it's questions on the Old and New Testament, some theology and some church history. And you realize that I'm like 18 years old, actually 19, just got out of high school. And um, I failed miserably. And In fact, everybody failed miserably. So there's a little bit of you know, solace there. Um, and, and as I started college, that, that reality of being a person who knows nothing became even greater reality sitting in class the first time and hearing about things that I've never even heard before. I've read the Bible. I've sat under preaching for years and teaching for, for, for years. And I'm like, oh, and these are basic things, basic things that, the, that if you've gone to church, you should know about. And in many ways, I was blessed. I, I was blessed because despite the ignorance that I had, the Lord sustained me and woke me up to the riches of the Scripture. And over college, I began to understand those particular things, that it's through the ordinary means of grace that, that Jesus has appointed for, for us to be awakened to its joy. And when I was a kid, church was boring to me. It was irrelevant because Tom and Jerry was not on the TV. But the Lord awakened my heart to its riches and to its joy. 
And it didn't come through whiz and bang. It came through the word of God. You know, sometimes the things that we, that, that we, that we do may feel weak and ineffective. These ordinary means of grace, the messages of the kingdom, it seems so weak and it seems so ineffective. The, the results are so slow and so small and so insignificant and maybe not even there. But again, Jesus is saying to us and encouraging us that the kingdom of God is great and it is growing and it is steadily growing. I'll give you a couple examples. Christian parents are fearful these days and have been for a while now that if they send their kids off to college, their kids are going to get indoctrinated with crazy things and that crazy things will lead them to reject the faith and maybe even family, biblical principles and things like that. I've heard of it. I've heard of that uh, even as a, when I was a student pastoring. Uh, students that were having problems in, in high school heard the same, kind of the same things. And my response to the, the parents were, was often this. Yes, I will preach the gospel to your student when they're here. Most often it was people who would bring their kids there. When they're here. But don't forget that parents are the greatest influence of their children. They're the greatest influence over their children. You are the ones who God has ordained to live the gospel before them to teach the gospel to them, to pray for them, and to bring them up to be, to, to be a part of the people of God every Sunday. For 2,000 years, that has what has, that's what has sustained Christianity. Not pizza parties, not rock bands and games. That's what has sustained the kingdom. That's what's growing the kingdom. That is the means of grace that God has instituted within the family. Parents, be parents. Same goes for the church. We feel marginalized more than ever. We have more problems than ever. We're small, we're weak. We have a message that's unpopular and unattractive. Well, no kidding, it was unpopular when Jesus preached. Don't be surprised. But when the word of God is preached and baptism and Lord's Supper is given and prayers are made, then the kingdom is going forth. The kingdom is going forth. And yeah, it may seem small, it may seem insignificant, but it's the kingdom, and it's growing, and it's working, and the Lord is nurturing it and cultivating it. That's what creates and sustains the church, because it's God's means of grace for us. And in the end, when you read the New Testament and all the things that it says about the, God, the, the kingdom of God and all the things we'll read about in, in the Gospel of Luke about the kingdom of God, the building of the kingdom is not based upon me. It's not based upon you. It's not up to you. The building of the kingdom of, of God is God. We only get to participate and, and respond to it, but it is God's kingdom. He is building it. And if he is building it, then it will not fail. So, so let's not despise small things. Let's not treat insignificant things as so insignificant that they're not a big deal. We don't need to do them. Things that are small in our eyes, the Lord is certainly doing something bigger and far deeper 
and far more meaningful than we could ever imagine. And as Jesus told us in the parable, or in the little story there, that we just get to be birds, that get to build our little nests in the many branches and find rest. And find rest. That's what the woman at the synagogue had found that day. She found a branch, was called to the branch. I love that, called to the branch. And found rest. We get to glorify God and enjoy him and enjoy the ride. These passages are meant to be an encouragement to us. Because when it does not seem like God is at work at all, or in our hearts, or in our church, or in the world around us, the reality is, He is. That's preaching to yourself, these truths. When we share the gospel, but we do not see immediate fruit, or we see a glaze come over their eyes. When we struggle with the scripture, and we have to wrestle with it. When we are discouraged, and defeat seems to be right, one right after another. When we are experiencing suffering and pain, we have to remember that God works in his own ways, in his own timing. But one thing is for sure is that the kingdom of God is growing and it is transforming you and me. Life so often seems so mundane and our efforts seem so small and feeble and insignificant. Church service can seem so unspectacular just ordinary. But the lesson we should take is the comfort and the rest that the mustard seed will grow and has been growing. What seems to be unimpressive, the unimpressive work of the yeast is growing into dough. That God often works in these ways. Taking the unimpressive and causing them to grow. It doesn't always look that way, does it? It doesn't always feel that way. But the work of God in his kingdom is in his people. And those people of his kingdom will be just like that woman again in the synagogue. And we can glorify God as he builds his kingdom and as we get to participate and be a part of that. And so I end with one question. Are you glorifying God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for the word. Thank you for the encouragement that your kingdom is growing from what is small and insignificant to something that is mighty. We can trust in your, your work, oh God. You are sovereign, omnipotent. Oh Lord, help us to to just rest as birds in our nests this morning of the word of God and be encouraged by what our Savior has said to us today. In your name we pray, amen.